As a strong atheist, how do you balance the the thing with the <laughs> like the atheism with like the terror thing? Like I know that for for me, any time that I've like done it and partaken in it, it's like I always try to treat it as exactly what it is, right. and sort of like this is a message that has appeared, and you can do with it what you will. Right, right. I think um, I got into tarot. I, I've gotten into a couple of alternative spirituality practices and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I get into all of them with a healthy dose of skepticism, but a big appreciation for placebo effect. Yes. So when I first started using tarot cards, I definitely was like, well, regardless of what kind of insight or mystical thing it has going on, if certain cards make me think of certain situations and prompt certain kinds of self-reflection, mm -hmm. that's really helpful, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Since then, um, I have read my own tarot, made like a tarot deck, done all of that for a long time. And um, I'm more at the point of, okay, this works. It's accurate. It's called me out many times. Yeah. I get the same card. Like I would shuffle a deck and put pull a card and then be like, no, and shuffle again and pull a card. And it would be the same card mm -hmm. more than once. Just to say that there's been enough times of it happening to for me to transition from, I don't know if this works or not, to be like, I don't know how this works. Sure. Instead. Yeah. And that's part of the fun, like mystery in that sort of stuff is that I feel like everyone who like goes super hard atheist, uh, always goes too far. And it's like, no, there's no spirit. There's no nothing else. Everything that we know that can be fathomed has been fathomed and we know it. Uh, and that's just plain not true. And there's definitely tons of mysteries to life that we are not sure about. And sometimes stuff just works and we don't know. And it's cool. Well, and I think it's exactly, I think at some point, the social discussion and image of intellectualism or appreciation of science or being a scientist mm -hmm. changed to this idea of like hard logic and inflexibility instead of an inquisitive mindset. Mm -hmm. And originally science, and I think most scientists would say that they come from a place of believing anything is possible until it's proven to be otherwise mm -hmm. or proven to be unlikely. And then they adapt their theories to what seems more appropriate. But I mean, a big aspect of science is that the easiest answer is not always the right one. Yeah. And that we have to explore and try things like to actually get any kind of concrete answer. So I think exploration of spirituality as a, an answer to becoming an atheist showcases more of a dedication to the idea of science and advancement than a lot of the very harsh, logical, closed-mindedness yeah. that you see with a lot of adamant um, atheists. Yeah. yeah. Richard Dawkins is a twat. Like, he, <laughs> <laughs> he's just insufferable. Well, it's just, are you using your atheism as a form of social control? Welcome to your new religion. Yeah, exactly. So. And so it... It's hard whenever, like, I don't know, we built up this life of like, oh, yeah, all of this stuff is bullshit. So then now everything is bullshit and I reject anything. And that right. itself becomes the religion. Right. And so uh, it makes life really 
bland and it makes for a combative individual yeah like if your doctrine like if you replace one kind of religious doctrine with a new hateful one it's not going to be you know Mm -hmm. uh, it's not going to reap very many good rewards for you yeah and it's been hard for me to turn that off actually same (laughs) i mean president of a secular organization yeah you you can bet you can bet I was combatant and argumentative and harshly, like, logical at points. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's—doing this podcast has been another good experience for me to sort of restructure how I approach that combativeness because uh, I've been doing it now for five years. And so I've had all manner of different people with different beliefs. Mm-hmm. And so— it has allowed me to turn off the like judgy brain, which is like, oh, religion equals stupid. And instead it's like, oh, everyone has a very nuanced and like life experience reasoning behind why and how they got to where they are. Most certainly. I think the only remnant that I have of it at all is that if you are a typical like modern practicing Christian, Catholic, Protestant, whatever, um, you do tend to host or support beliefs that I believe are harmful or malicious mm-hmm. to the greater good of people. And that's a, that's a controversial statement right there. Yeah. But I think that it's just true. I think that a lot of modern Christianity teaches um, malicious ideas. Mm-hmm. And that is where I still find myself being militant is I'm like, I don't care about your personal religious freedom like you're harmful. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, like, of course I would n- never infringe, but there are just moments where I'm like, I don't care about offending you either. And I don't care about your opinion. Like this mm-hmm. opinion that you have is incredibly harmful on a large scale level. And you only choose to not be aware of that by limiting your exposure. Sure. So. <laughs> the, the challenge then I think for me is that the desire to, like find the right time and space for when to be combative because <laughs> like a lot of my closest friends are Christians and I just can't do that all the time. I'll lose my friends. Right, right. No. And, you know, I'll admit I'm a heavy introvert. Um, I had a unique childhood and I was a little socially isolated. So I've never had a large group of people. I've had large groups of acquaintances who had a very specific idea of me that I didn't feel intimately connected to. Mm-hmm. Um, but really now in adulthood, I don't think that I can have intimate in-depth relationships with someone who is very devout mm-hmm. unless we ignore that aspect of our identities. Yeah, that's kind of how it happens. It's, yeah. It is just like, because... It is weird, and that might be, like, another aspect of adulthood is that there's so many things that we just acknowledge as presence in the room, but that's about it, and we just never touch it. And for the sake of upholding friendships and relationships, we just don't 
touch those. Well, that old adage of politeness, what do you not discuss at a party, like mm-hmm. politics or religion? Yeah. Um, and the idea is that you'll, you won't have any friends if you mm-hmm. talk about that. I think that it's important, though, to ask the motivations for why that became impolite and why those topics became so divisive. Because again, um, religion and politics and a lot of moral, ethical belief systems are used to uphold systems of oppression mm-hmm. and are harmful. And so... It is hard. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then the, cause like when you find people who are willing to discuss those things, mm-hmm. even when you disagree with them, that is another like level of nuance that it's like, no, we don't agree on anything, but I'm really super glad that like you're able to talk about this. Right. Right. I guess I'll say this was one experience I had. When I was in the secular organization, as we would have couching events where we would set up like a rug and a couch in a living room, like set up like a lamp just to make it look like we had put a furniture on the library lawn. Mm-hmm. And um, we would invite people to come sit with us and ask an atheist mm-hmm. questions because being even in like on a college campus, being at OSU, you're a heavy outlier if you're an atheist mm-hmm. and people really do not understand basic things like yeah. they'll ask like well how do you know if something's right or not like why would you choose to like make good decisions like why would you be mm-hmm. kind to people it comes up a lot yeah. and uh you have to discuss actually that if every atheist on the planet um dropped dead we would only lose one percent of the american prison population mm-hmm. so that's a fun one to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. But um, we would lose a lot of service members, though, because atheists disproportionately make up, like, public service industry mm-hmm. um, in America. But anyway, yeah. um, just to say, I had a great conversation one time with mm-hmm. a very devout uh, follower of his specific dogma. And we talked for like four hours and we left on a great place. And I stood up and was like, actually, you know, like I felt really good about this. We have very different opinions, but you were so respectful. Went to shake his hands and he tells me that he can't touch women if he's not married to them Mm. as a part of his religion. And it really confirmed for me that people can sit there and have what seems to be a civilized conversation with someone that they don't give basic human respect, Mm. that he views my existence as like a temptation to be avoided, Mm. that I'm not an equal of his. And he does regard me differently based on something intrinsic that I could not control. Um, And that was kind of what made me stop trying to even talk to Mm. people in that kind of a way. If that makes sense. Yeah. And maybe I just have like some like stupid optimism inside me, but it's like, I feel like even those interactions and I feel like the second podcast always ends up me discussing free will and the absence of it. But uh, (laughs) the, the difference is, is that like that experience for that person planted the seed of like, you challenged that worldview in that experience in that like, well, all my life, like women are like dumber than me and a temptation. And like, yeah. Uh So like what, how is it that this person can exist and this other belief can exist and whether or not it like caused a conversion or anything, it at least planted a seed of, having some sort of deeper consideration for other human beings. Right. And not to be, not to be cynical, Mm. but to me, it conveyed the disconnect between the way that people can sit and judge and view me and then what they hope to project. Mm. 
So I think like it was more important to him to not project an atmosphere of disdain or like demeaning me than it was for him to actually feel that way towards me. Mm -hmm. And I think it illustrates the cognitive dissonance of the Mm -hmm. power imbalance within a lot of religious structures Mm -hmm. and like why so many why so many deeply devout men struggle with their relationships with women in their life of any capacity, like their wives, their sisters, their mothers, their daughters, mm-hmm. their coworkers, because there it is all through the lens of inferiority. Yeah. Whether or not they want to acknowledge it, if you believe in that, you you believe it. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the cognitive dissonance between their behavior and what they think goes to further illustrate that they are re- like violating their own morality. Mm-hmm if that makes sense. Yeah. And that is like a big challenge. And it's any time that like, and maybe this is just a weird thing that like nice people have all the time is that like, I just have a loaded gun of like intellectual things to like poke holes in people's arguments. And I just never use it because I'm too nice to do it. But like, I have it. And I know I have it and I could like be angry and do it, but I've never actually been angry enough to like right. well, do that to anyone. I've been angry enough to poke holes just in the sense of I've had people walk up to me and tell me, convince me I'm wrong mm-hmm. and I spend two hours trying. Mm-hmm. And I think that it really does teach you that people believe what they want to believe. And there were definitely certain people that I planted seeds in mm-hmm. that maybe have different beliefs, but... I also spent several hours talking to several people of different religions over the course of the years, and none of them convinced me of anything except yeah. like further um, understanding of the beliefs I was forming, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Like I yeah, understood yeah. my own opinion better, but I definitely didn't agree with them. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a – yeah, I mean the social – contract and the social order that we are partaking in at all times of like we we are in some sort of civilized setting here and so we don't have like we don't destroy each other for whatever reason and but like we can and kind of like how you said on the last one like humans have a vast capacity for destruction and damage but we don't. And that's a nice thing depending, (laughs) but it's also like we realize how important it is when it breaks down. (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. This is a little disconnected, but the same thought. Um, My therapist, some advice that she's given me, shout out Karen. Um, She has given me the advice that you shouldn't disregard capacities or tools that you have learned, even if they come from ugly places or bad experiences. Mm -hmm. So this idea that we are accumulating tools in our toolkit as we move forward and that most days we don't need a hammer, but some days you do, and you're going to be grateful when you have it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that I love that idea of like maintaining our capacity for the full human experience while keeping the actual useful things on our belt and the more rare things in our toolkit. Yeah. I think that oftentimes people like to use human nature to kind of justify like this um, low thought, high emotionally driven, <laughs> you know, behavior. 
And I, I just think that there's there's a balance there. I love that I am a human being who's capable of as many horrible things as the worst person who's ever existed. Mm-hmm. And I'm capable of being Mother Teresa if, you know, I ever wanted to. Yeah. And Free will, right? Yes. Well, and that's actually a... Again, the second podcast always involves a discussion of my belief in free will, which I don't. And so the we're a combination of our environment and our genes. And so the, the right ingredients can make Hitler and the right ingredients can make Mother Teresa. And the right ingredients will turn them into either. Right, except I think one of those ingredients um, really is like your personal wrestling with, this is a term we're going to use a lot, but your personal wrestling with your own cognitive dissonance Mm. and the choices that you make. I think that there are many times throughout our lives where we developmentally make a decision to do what we think is right or what we feel like is easier. And I think that if you do what feels like it's easier or feels more satisfying, like I think that that is a free will decision and that you will maybe become less well-developed. But just, I guess, to say that, like, I don't think that obviously you can have that opinion and I think it's entirely justified. And like I said, I might be entirely wrong and it's all predestined. But just to say um, if someone's an addict, their brain chemistry is being altered from before the first time they use the substance in order to become an addict. I think that the fact that anyone is ever a recovered addict to me is like proof of free will, Mm. because that means that you have like all of the chemical and environmental and personal motivations for something it entirely formed. It's not like easy for you to do without or to change that opinion on. And you have to make a lot of series of choices that lead to that ultimate bigger choice. Does that make sense? Sure. Um, And there's actually like, so I've been listening to this podcast called Feeling Good uh, by Dr. David Burns. He uh, basically invented uh, Team CBT. Uh, CBT is a form of therapy. It's cognitive behavioral therapy. And Team is just, psychologists enjoy acronyms. Uh, So it's... um, Testing, empathy, agenda setting, and methods. And so it's this sort of this form of accelerated therapy. And kind of the thesis of it is that our thoughts shape how we feel and not the other way around. Yes. I would. Okay. Yes. (laughs) Because I agree with that to some level, except Mm. my personal struggle and one of the things I work on in therapy is that I intellectualize my emotions. Mm. I, um, I learned to mask at a really young age, Mm. um, which I don't really want to dive into that term, but masking and, um, I disassociate Mm. often. And like when I've had periods of trauma, I've disassociated a lot. Mm. Um, something that I personally work on was, that often my emotions were not helpful and I was taught to focus on the logic of the situation and what was best or pragmatic, what was good for the group and to allow my thoughts to override my emotions, like to think through my emotions in such a way. Um, my emotions did not disappear and I routinely am like, 
I have lots of physically stored trauma that has to be expressed in a variety of ways that I'm exploring, you know, in self-betterment. And I guess just to say that, um, I think it's a balance. I think that you can think your way through anything, but your body does keep the score and the emotions that you felt and like the chemical reactions that you have when placed in certain situations, mm. when forced to have certain thoughts because of obvious observations. I think that that has just as much of an impact. Though CBT is very successful mm. for a lot of people and obviously has a lot of validity. I just don't think it's a blanket mm. uh, statement. Right. Well, I mean... That's not really an argument with me. It's more of an argument with uh, right. <laughs> Dr. David Burns. But, like, the yeah. – <laughs> um, and he, like, has a lot of, like, stories and numbers and stuff. And, and is much the, more educated and could probably address what I'm saying in a way that would make yeah, me agree with him. <laughs> me, as someone who's just been listening to a podcast for a while, uh, may not be able to. But it, it is, like, one of the more interesting parts about it is that, like, because the testing is – the T part of it is that there is a sort of quantitative way that they can actually quantitative and qualitative way that they can measure, uh, psychological results. Um, and it makes it to where like achieving certain goals is much more measurable and, uh, effective because of that. And so uh, it's an interesting thing in that like he f simultaneously um, found a way of like improving therapeutic results and a way of making psychology not be so wibbly wobbly, but actually like have some sort of measurable results. Um, <laughs> but um, all that to say is that like, the the paradox in not believing in free will is that any time that we communicate with other people and any time that we sort of create an experience for someone else or someone creates an experience for us, uh, we are part of the environment that shapes others and others are the part of the environment that shapes us. And so it's, it's a paradox because how do we decide to change the environment? And so it's like the, but <laughs> any interaction that you have with someone that uh, I use this metaphor, planting the seeds is that like you, you're contributing into the direction that someone is going to go. And so I don't, while I don't necessarily have the um, binary of like free will versus determinism, because I think determinism is kind of a little farther than what it actually is. It's more just like we're going. <laughs> um, and it's not so much that like you aren't making choices, but more so that that is the choice that you did make. I get No, I get that. I understand that. I think I think that's a very interesting concept. That's really valid. Like I understand like I understand that. That mm -hmm. resonates in a way. Um 
I don't know if it's a desire for control mm -hmm. that makes me very happy about the idea of free will. Mm -hmm. Or if it's seeking a comfort for the idea that the people in my life who've been influential to me do not determine my life or future. Mm. Um, but I definitely have several personal motivations for preferring the narrative of free will. Sure. And, and a little in this concept that you're talking mm. about. Um, gosh, that's just, that's good thought. That's a heavy thought. Uh, well, following train of thought, uh, because you mentioned narrative is actually something I was talking to my wife about uh, in that I recently started listening to another podcast called You're Wrong About. And it's two journalists and they like look back on things that may have happened in like popular culture or uh, just history in general that we are very like have very ill-conceived perceptions about what actually happened right we are very misinformed general public yes yeah uh, the 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 victors write the history books mm -hmm. very true and like imperialistic capitalism conquered for a long time oh yeah so <laughs> <laughs> and and that is that does kind of generally seem to be like the thesis of the the show of eventually is that like yeah what it actually is is that like capitalism sucks and we we've got it all wrong and we keep treating minorities like shit <laughs> yeah well i mean really uh, existing power structures like we have to acknowledge we live on a racist planet with like lots of slavery similar mm. um economies yeah you know it's uh, fun yeah minorities and women sorry but the no you're fine <laughs> i think women are included well, not statistically in right. minorities but within an oppressed minority group yes. a, a group not in power sure uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the i was think like formulating this thought about how narrative is very kind of important and crucial to the human psyche in that like hi history doesn't have a story it's chaos and we're just like putting it down as best as we can and like things happen and we try and like formulate a cause and effect thing linear <laughs> causality to it but what it really is is just like chaos happening and then like the the story that we see is just the crossing in between of those things happening right and um uh, part of the reason that just to take this, make it super personal, um, part of the reason why I studied communications, I also got an English minor um, because reading and writing and storytelling has been a really big theme of just my life. Yeah. And um, there is an obvious desire for people to have a beginning, middle, end. There is a beginning, middle, end to very few things. Yeah. I think the reality is that the story of human history is innumerable stories that it is impossible for us to accurately know now mm -hmm. um, because of limitations that all culminated. Everything of that chaos, every aspect of it did happen for a deliberate reason and as an important part of some story. It just maybe wasn't ours yeah. um, and it wasn't shared or it wasn't documented. I think that most of some of the most significant historical stories will not ever be told mm -hmm. or they will be only told falsely. Yeah. Um, and that's a very sad, just human nature aspect. Again, the victors write the history books. Mm -hmm. um, that is, we talked earlier about being optimistic for the future. 
the internet is terrifying, but one of the things I'm optimistic about including it is the idea of an easily accessible global database of information, just because I think that opening up a marketplace and allowing more stories to be told is the only way that you get a more accurate view of the story. But I do think you're right that we are continuously, it's a never ending journey. We keep cycling. There's no beginning, middle, end. It's not clean cut. And what we have been told has largely been propaganda for like what is currently, um, applicable and useful to those who are in power. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, and yeah, because it's useful to those that are in power, it's like we tell ourselves stories about like what it is that happened and then just other people have different stories in their minds. And so like the, the concept of evil is convenient for the stories that we tell ourselves, but it's you can't actually pin it down because everyone has their own experiences and reasonings as to how they got to where they are again. And it's a funny thing because my lack of belief in free will actually creates this sort of extreme empathy in that I, I do kind of pity terrible people because a lot of things had to happen in their life for them to turn out this way. Right. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I will say that I think the important thing that you're talking about is, so you don't believe in free will. So you do believe that someone could equally turn into like a serial killer or a saint mm-hmm. um, and that the situations determine it and they start out exactly the same, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. I think that there have been documented instances of people who have been in shockingly similar situations because human suffering is somewhat universal at this point. I think that there are people who have been through situations I've been through who turn that into a reason to be hateful or malicious. How do I put it? Subjective morality is a concept a lot of people love to discuss because they're like, well, of course I have to include this violence in my period drama. It's appropriate for the time and it wasn't even morally objectionable. So I can't act like it was a bad thing because it was acceptance at the time. And, you know, we talk about that a lot with other cultures where it's like, oh, if you had been born here and raised this, you would believe this. I was born and raised in Southeastern Oklahoma, Baptist. And yet I still somehow came to the conclusion that they were wrong. Mm -hmm. And I still somehow came to the conclusion that sexism and racism were harmful. Mm -hmm. I came to a lot of conclusions that involved a lot of solo educating of myself Mm -hmm. and deliberate choices. And I guess just to say that I do think there's such a thing as too much empathy Mm -hmm. and understanding Mm -hmm. and that you have a personal responsibility to use your eyes and observe the impact you're having on people Mm. around you and then make decisions that don't do that. Yeah. So I think that maybe certain situations make it inevitable that someone will be harmful, but the amount of harm that you do is 100% your choice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And don't misunderstand empathy and understanding as um, allow or like letting people do like (laughs) condoning yeah yeah Yeah. there there you go um in that yeah i can understand why a serial killer would have gotten to that point but also don't and cry it at the same time keep those people away from the rest of society until they are we know that they're not capable of doing that anymore 
Uh, but it's still like, this is another thought that keeps coming up in the podcast, but it's like, if we were to treat the justice system from this perspective, rather than you are bad and you deserve punishment. And instead, what are the things that led this person to do the things that they did? We would be able to maybe inform and reform how we shape our society instead. 100% agree with that. 100%. Rehabilitation versus punitive judicial systems, 100%. It's a thing. Um, I think you can't separate how punitive our judicial system is from how racist we are as a country, Mm -hmm. Um, that it is often meant to be a hammer coming down, discouraging people around the person being punished from trying to be what we have told them that they cannot be, um, as I think oftentimes how it's actually used. Um, but just say 100% agree. I think that countries that do rehabilitate, like rehabilitation focused prison time, as opposed to how we do it Mm. often have fantastic results in comparison. At this point, it's really shown that our prison system does nothing but make money and it's not helpful. It Mm. brings people back into it. So I totally agree with that. And I do get what you mean about the distinction between the empathy because understanding those choices and why someone can make them is necessary in helping them no longer make those choices. Exactly. 100%. I guess I mean to say, I don't like the idea of subjective morality because it goes to suggest that if your neighborhood believes one thing and the neighborhood over there believes something else that's harmful to people, you don't have the right to intercede. I think that harm against people is really never justified. And nowhere in my morality does harm against another person come into necessity. Nowhere in my subjective experience do I feel like people have to be harmed in order for anything. Um, And so I guess just to say that like, 100% agree with where you're coming from. Hate the ways in which those phrases are often used in real application. Yes. Yes. Um, I don't believe in subjective morality. Um, It's like a combination of uh, Kant's categorical imperative with like uh, Sam Harris's uh, moral landscape. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Which are problematic and often used to justify problematic policies or beliefs or venture forward. So, Ah, yeah, but that's, that's, yeah, the objective morality is also just difficult because, you know, people like to argue, but, (laughs) (laughs) but it is like the, it's not so much as like a, this is right and this is wrong, but it's more of like a spectrum of like what is more right and more wrong. And we are always sort of trying to find the asymptotic uh, flattening of the goodness curve. <laughs> Definitely. Well, if like if you if you have a decision and it's tied to a bunch of strings of different needs mm-hmm. and like benefits, like um, putting a road in that makes it easier to get to a hospital, but like that road could cut through two residential areas and restrict community access to a park. Mm-hmm. Like um, th- those kinds of things are ones where you're like balancing greater good. Mm-hmm. 
Again, those are often not the situations yeah, where that's actually so applied. Utilitarianism, and that's all like you're opening. I will say, I show my hand. Yeah, yeah. I show my hand because I'm very utilitarian. I'm pragmatic. <laughs> I believe in um, what's good for the most without doing harm. That's like a distinction that utilitarianism doesn't tend to make. Yeah. They're like, for the greater good. <laughs> and I'm like, for the greater good that does not ref- infringe upon anyone's human rights. Yeah, yeah. Greater good asterisk. Yeah, yeah. I do believe in personal autonomy and free will in a very Western way yeah um well as you can tell moral philosophy is something that is often discussed on this podcast so that's uh, <laughs> i i'm very you know interested in like i'm like a philosophy hobbyist there's no there's nowhere that like i don't have any like academic status proving that i know a lot about philosophy i just enjoy exploring it a lot <laughs> no i get that i really do um, nothing that my like you know music degrees are gonna help me with or uh, without, but <laughs> well, same but, over here. Yeah, right. Uh, at the same time, it's like every people have asked me this question in that like, oh well, since you're a musician, why didn't you make a music podcast instead of like a interviewing anyone podcast uh, that like talks about deep stuff? And it's like, well, because. If musicians didn't have experiences outside of music, we wouldn't have anything to write about. Yeah. <laughs> and it would be really boring if it, like, I mean, that's how you kind of get the common practice period, which is just like people making music for music's sake, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it just gets really up its own ass and boring. <laughs> Definitely. Re- really redundant. Yeah. I think we talked earlier about selling out. I think yeah. that's often what gets labeled as selling out is someone getting uh, so successful to the point where like the original motivations or inspiration for their music are no longer available to them. Yeah. Like their daily experience has become so impacted by their music that they no longer have a separate experience. Yeah. And then you can either become very meta, radiohead, <laughs> or you can like deep like dive deep into that aesthetic and like fully be about the fact that you're making that for that yeah and it's hard then because like we make music to relate to other people and i don't know it's it's this weird sort of like anyone else in here feeling what i'm feeling Yes. yes and and while yeah, not every song that you write is going to hit everyone on every single point that you make, but it is like, oh, hey, I resonate with some or most or all of that. And I'm glad that you shared that so that I could share in that experience with you. Um, but it, yeah, it becomes harder whenever it's like, gosh, isn't it hard just being so famous and rich that I can't even go outside? It's anyone else in here feel that? Yeah, no. And it's like you you have this weird idea about like be honest to your experience, but then when your experience becomes no longer the common one. Yeah. Yeah. On a smaller scale for for local musicians uh, who are not in danger of that kind of meta thing anytime soon. um, I think that you limit your audience sometimes the more personal that you get Mm. and you have to find the balance that you're comfortable with and that you want like how limiting do you want to be to who will relate to your music for the greater return of having the people who do relate to your music or for maybe not greater return of having the people who do relate to your music really relating to it 
Yeah. And being the kind of people that you want to talk to after a show. Yeah. And <laughs> this is why I don't know what your relationship with genre is, but like I, whenever I like became an artist, I didn't want to have like an artist name in front of it. I am just Santiago Ramones and everything that I do is Santiago Ramones. And what that does is that anything that I put out is me and it, and not the other way around. And so the, I don't know if you heard the, the circle Lotus stream that I did, but like, I don't stay in a genre because I don't care. And like, there's no point because there's interesting musical things to do everywhere. And so to remain in a genre is to get really tired of it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, I definitely understand that. I talked earlier about when bands like break up and they do solo projects or other things, Mm -hmm. that's been a theme for me lately is the desire to have my music that's mine and solo and songwriting be sometimes different from the projects I work on. Mm -hmm. Like lately I've been kind of shopping around like, Hey, anyone need a backup singer or co-writer or guitarist? And, uh, seeing like if maybe I could form a band and that's mostly been in genres that I don't feel capable of, adequately conveying Mm. by myself Mm -hmm. I guess just to mean um I think that's a great approach Mm. and when I was younger I toyed with the idea of having like a different name Mm -hmm. and doing the artist thing very separate yeah um and it's a fun concept but in the idea of having a sustainable craft that you are developing rather than trying to make like some kind of finished polished project that's going to get you famous. Um, one approach is more sustainable and helpful yeah. and it's your approach, you know, right. in my opinion. Well, it's, it, it's also hard in some sense in that, like, that maybe it just has to do with the way that like we perceive the music industry anyways, but it's like, maybe we don't give the consumer enough credit in that, oh, well, the consumer bought your music because it sounds like this. So if you make more things like this, then they will buy that. And that's not true. People aren't drones necessarily. And so, like, it's not like you have... Tex-Mex one evening and you're like, I like that. I want that every day for the rest of my life forever. (laughs) And so for some reason, the music industry is built upon that, which is like, oh, you are this kind of artist. People will come to you for this kind of sound. And so you have to keep making that sound forever. Well, because it turned like music into a business Mm -hmm. and genres from a form of classification rather into like, what kind of restaurant do you want to go to? Um, And like, what's the restaurant within that category that you like? And like, what song or album is like the dish you gave? (laughs) That metaphor can go forever. Um, I think that, again, to me, it's the difference between making it a business, having it be like a separate thing, and then your intimate personal relationship with it. Like what, if you cook at home, are you making the same food every time? 
Like, no. And so why should an artist have to make the same thing every time? Um, Because of my strategic communications degree, the idea of I'm very familiar with the concept of and have often done categorizing consumers, identifying what your target demographics are, using, um, you know, statistics on what they watch and when they watch it and where they go and when and how often all to kind of create like this is an ideal consumer for this. So if someone was going to look at my music, they could probably very easily be like, all right, like a mid 20s single woman with this and and like Mm -hmm. give all these qualifiers. And then in reality, some of the people who come to my shows most frequently are like, a dude in his fifties who like, you know, and just like to say that it's the intersection of artistry and business. Yeah. Um, when you try and make your artistry fit within like the structures of business and what we know is the business world, like it'll work, but have fun with that limitation. Yeah. And, but the thing is like with that example you just gave of like, Oh, a guy in his fifties, is the one who likes my music is because like that ideal candidate that you narrow down and like, it's all just probabilities anyways. And so, yeah, a young woman at this age who has a college education, who tends to lean left in her political views is the ideal candidate. But also, you know, if this guy in his fifties was walking by the bar and liked what he heard and then just stuck around and started, Ooh, I've never had this happen in my life. And like humans also like novelty. And so while the probability of this ideal candidate is higher, everyone else also has some sort of probability. And so the, the weird thing about the internet age now is also not that like, we're all just striving for like our ideal audience. It's also that like the possibility is that if it doesn't matter who it is, if someone reaches 500 million people, they are famous. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think, and they are valued for some reason. Oh yeah. Well, because we (laughs) equate like fame with success and esteem. And that is, of course, you find your value in the fact that other people value you, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. If you buy into that, which like have everyone have fun in therapy, unlearning that stuff. But, um, no, I think that's exactly, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. I think another thing to focus on is to say, this is the ideal person for this type of music. So I'm going to make all of my sounds and songs and aesthetics suited for this person. I'm like, why are you so focused on the fish that you know you're going to catch? Mm-hmm. Anyway, like, why are you so worried about keeping this core demographic that you think is most appropriate for your sound? Again, business motivations, it makes sense. You want to create a reliable consumer that will keep buying stuff and keep making money. Um, But is your goal as an artist to have, you know, a set group of people who buy an album every two years and you make a certain amount of money and get to tour off of it? And like, you have to, like, again, some people might be aspiring to that. Mm. Um, I don't think it makes any sense to say, here's our ideal thing. We're going to limit ourselves to this thing that already likes us. (laughs) Like if at some point women in that category no longer like my music, they just, that's no longer my direct audience. Mm -hmm. That can change. Yeah. And the other thing about not 
turning your audience into a drone is that like humans are human and they like novelty and they also uh, get attached to human beings and we enjoy a relationship in some shape or form. And so that like you might even make a more captive audience member or consumer out of this man in his 50s because one he appreciated the novelty of experiencing music from someone that he wouldn't normally listen to and the fact that like now that he appreciates this novelty he's attached to you and might just listen to anything else that you make regardless of what it is just because it comes from you Right, exactly. And I think that that's, um, there's a word for that kind of attachment to mm-hmm. whenever we form like a one-sided attachment to an artist or an entity. Mm-hmm. And um, unfortunately, if you're not famous, <laughs> the people who are forming those attachments are like people you might get a protective order against. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it can be a little uncomfortable to observe um, that point of trend and um i love bo burnham as a comedian and something that he has said is if he ever stops making content that you like appreciate don't support him like he's like like if i tell a joke and you don't think it's funny don't laugh like if you don't like my special don't watch it and he's like i don't care if you've been my fan like if i'm no longer making things that resonate with you you shouldn't support me Mm-hmm. anymore. Yeah. And I love that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, because I do think that that's why so many artists feel an obligation to those very hard won followers that support them. Yeah. And then they feel this need to be something else. Yeah, I find it very scary. Also that like, so the business model of, I mean, for example, I've been doing this podcast and like I've you know I've analyzed ways in which I could monetize myself as an artist monetize myself as a podcast monetize whatever and a lot of the business models include like oh if you do like a patreon sort of thing then you can have like devoted followers who like give you more money and then they start shaping the content that you make and it's like oh uh, I'll have a poll and then you tell me what you want to see from me and that's exactly the thing that happens is that like now you're just you are a servant to your patron and then you are losing yourself and i feel like that model over time is going to dry out because the consumers are receiving exactly what they want which you shouldn't give people exactly what they want. Right. Well, I think there's a middle ground of creative collaboration and feedback. Mm -hmm. And I most saw this with YouTube before Patreon, Mm -hmm. where artists would post content and then have direct like polls or feedback in the comments. Mm -hmm. And it would shape like their future videos or content. I think it's best when you take notes from your audience. Yeah. Like when they're like, you know, I really liked this song of yours. It was so energetic and it really got the crowd going. That doesn't mean you need to write that song five times. Yeah. That means that they like when you're more energetic mm-hmm. and that maybe you should see if more energetic songs in your set make a better result for you. Yeah. Like it should just be feedback and not an obligation. And with Patreon, because there's money attached to it, mm-hmm. it often comes one, especially because like it's so connected to a commissions culture. Mm-hmm. And commissions in general as an artist are mm-hmm. a gray area. I think that you have people who enjoy art who say, hey, I want 
a tattoo. So I am going to go to a tattoo artist and here's my concept and let them design it. And if I like the design, then I'll let them tattoo it and it'll be great. And then you have people who, and I'm guilty of this as well at different points in my life, find a design online, print it off, bring it to them, go, I want exactly this in this size and exactly this place. One of those is like you getting a service performed for you. And one of them is like a creative collaboration yeah. that you benefit from, mm-hmm. that both of you benefit from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the tattoo artist also knows in part that whenever they become a tattoo artist, they are signing up to do both of those services. Right. And that they can <laughs> say no at different points, but that for most people to make money and to do it, it involves a balance mm-hmm. of those things. I think the same is true for artists. And I, so I do think that like forming a Patreon, forming that kind of really interactive community. If you're not aware of that and you don't set deliberate creative boundaries for yourself, you could definitely fall into that. Yeah. It might be interesting to like do a Patreon and it's like, what do you guys want? And like overwhelmingly people vote for this thing and then just go with the opposite thing on purpose just to be like, this is it. This is not what you wanted. And that's why I chose it. (laughs) <laughs> I think that kind of opposition would be met with definitely mixed results. But I think that there, I've seen people before be like, everyone selected this and I was really disappointed. Mm-hmm. So I decided to do this instead and I hope that's okay. Yeah. But like, it's just like, I was really disappointed that this was the one that won. I think open communication, mm-hmm. again, make it a collaboration. You're yeah. allowed to say no. So you can go like, ah, this was the poll, but I didn't want to do it. And then people have the right to unfollow you if they feel like it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, again, that's the difficult part about like patronage and, you know, the arts. Making it your job. (laughs) The arts have lived off of patronage in that like it's it's such a funny thing. I I like saw this circle happen. Uh, I forget what my wife and I were watching, but it was like. The <laughs> yeah, it, it's about like artistic integrity and like making arts for the masses versus uh, making arts for yourself. And so it's like the people who pay for arts that go to the masses are super rich people that are able to like do all of the market research to like make sure that it is profitable. And then it's like poor people that consume it. And then the other way around is like the artists who do like very specific niche things that like the masses are going to hate except for like a very specific niche. That is funded by super rich people. But those artists are super broke. Yes. (laughs) Yes. No, I definitely I 100 percent like this explanation of things. I think is super accurate. I think you can see it reflected in the fact that communities like Tulsa will have creative grant programs Mm. where there'll be like an artist moved to Tulsa and will pay like 10,000 whatever of this creative grant and room and board while you do like these artistic contributions to the city for the betterment of life for the wealthy individuals in these neighborhoods that we're gentrifying (laughs) right now. And like, just to say, um, it's, it's kind of your dream as a starving artist to get, to get your sugar mama, get your sugar daddy of patronage. And like, that's historically the case, um, as long as imperialistic capitalism has been in charge. Yeah. (laughs) And it's been that way for a long time, but like the artists just try their best to like, yeah, I'll do the thing that you want as 
well as you want, but like I am going to also eke my little bit of rebellious. Like I'll in paint there. the Sistine Chapel, but the Pope's gonna be flashing people on it. Yeah. Like kind <laughs> of vibes. Yeah. I think that that's why I've been discouraged from making music my primary breadwinning thing. Um, is one, it's incredibly difficult, and you're working three jobs to work one gig. Yeah. Um, but two, because like I don't. I don't like the idea of having to have my security motivations be my artistic motivations. And I think that the tortured artist is a modern invention. Like we, we lost our idea of like a separate muse. Elizabeth Gilbert has a great Ted talk about this, so I won't get into it. You should just listen to her Ted talk, but, um, no relation, no relation, no relation. Oh, I didn't realize she, she's the author of eat, pray, love and a couple other books, but she discusses how like, we have really romanticized poor mental health and poor like happiness as an artistic motivation and like that you have to suffer for your art. Um, and we, like she discusses how the modern ego kind of brought that about and how taking ownership and too much pride in your creations is yeah. kind of the source of that. Um, so I don't know. I think that it's obviously a complicated topic that I haven't figured out the right answer for, which is why I like work other jobs and make music on the side and don't let anyone tell me anything. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and that's the funny thing too, is that like every small artist, like the dream is to like make it sustainable. Like, I mean, I think maybe one generation or two ago, it like, it was, oh, be famous and be rich. Right. But like 80s. now, yeah, now we're just so like beaten down that like sustainability is what the dream is. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, we've um, we've shifted our unrealistic like daydreams of millionaire to unrealistic daydreams of suburban comfort. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Right. And I mean, we'll we'll see which one. I don't know if like. If you shoot for millionaire, will you get suburban comfort or will you just like just miss and just end up homeless? You know, homeless? <laughs> it depends on the studies. Apparently millionaire, you're pretty safe. But when you start climbing from millionaire, you start developing problems of like um, impacted like empathy levels and like yeah, cognitive yeah. function starts to deteriorate, yeah. which is really interesting to me um, that money and power give you all of the uh, decision-making authorities of the free world and also actively erode at your cognitive yeah. and judgment abilities the yeah. longer that you have them, which makes term limits seem a lot more reasonable, but I digress. Yeah, well, uh, we as humans are seeking this goal that will in turn make us less human. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think, yeah, that's a great way to, it's a great way to put that. I think. Hey, that, we're poets. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Great communicator. What a shock with your podcast. But no, I think, I think it's an actively evolving thing. I think that we are coming to a social awareness and awakening on the topic though. I feel very lucky that my personal development is kind of coinciding with like social realization Mm. of a lot of these realities. So I am excited to see if that changes. Yeah, it's, it is interesting that I remember asking my mom this at one point that, um, hey, like as we're getting older, it seems like the world is on fire all the time. Is that new or has it always been this way and I'm only just now like growing up to realize it? And she was like both. Yeah, <laughs> both. And you can statistically validate that. 
that like it's uh, like with inflation, with like mental health um, statistics, with general experience, like this is a difficult time. Yeah. And um, like I didn't I didn't have to walk uphill both ways in the snow to get to school. (laughs) But neither did they, honestly. (laughs) I worked part time to pay for my own college. Oh, same. Yeah. That's, I mean, another reason why I left chemical engineering was I was working full time and enrolled in 18 hours my first semester of college. And I was 17 mm-hmm. when the semester first started. Um, I, I was making the joke that like our parents had to work part time to pay for college, but like it actually paid for college. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. And <laughs> I was, that's where I was going is to yeah. say, and I still wasn't able to pay for my yeah. school working while going yeah. And it's, like, it's exhausting. Yeah. Oh, your dad had to work full time so that your mother could stay at home and raise kids. That is impossible now. It is. It is. It's it's interesting that a lot of the um a lot of the conversations that would have been great to have 60 years ago are really <laughs> difficult to have now because the financial landscape has the kind of moved past the social beliefs. Mm -hmm. Um, Last thing to discuss, and especially because you mentioned Bo Burnham, but like uh, I was talking to my brother about this and we might just end up doing a separate podcast about this anyways, but like for some reason, Bo Burnham's inside didn't hit me as hard as it did anyone. Like everyone else is like freaking out about it. And I think the reason that I explain is that like I've been experiencing all the things that he talked about in inside for the past like five, six years. And so it didn't feel new to me. It just felt like he just put it all in like a nice complete one hour long package. But like for me, I was just like, yeah, dude, I know I've been living this for the past five, six years. I get that. (laughs) Um, I did love inside. It didn't, make as big of an impact as his original ones did because Bo Burnham, as he is to me, and I think our generation in a lot of ways, um, was new to me. Yeah. I think that any time that you have any kind of creator on like their third or fourth project or special or something like this, it resonates with you in different places because his approach to it is not as surprising to us as it once was. Yeah. Even as he's developed and gotten better at it. Yeah. Um, it, which it's, it's funny that you mentioned his previous two works because it's clearly better than his previous two works. Oh, I definitely. So. No, this is, this is a, an amazing accomplishment for him to have done by himself. Um, I guess that, I don't know if you felt this, the meta experience of being aware of him creating it and how he incorporated like the kind of process of him making it while seeing it and then being a content creator firsthand made you very able to understand where he was at, um, which I can understand it doling its resonance for you. I don't mean this in a negative way. Mm -hmm. I left that mainly like, oh, Bo, like your mental health. (laughs) like like just the sense of like um I was like you know you made you did make great art um the suffering for the art happened beforehand I don't necessarily think he had to suffer so much while making it to make it so well but um I think that that's a common thing that artists learn how to do as you get older is to make better art at less of a cost to yourself Mm. 
So for me inside, I was just like, this is one of the best things you've ever made. And I still feel like it cost you more mm. than your old stuff did to make this. Yeah. Like, so it didn't leave me as satisfied because I was like, oh, but like, I hope it, yeah. like your other <laughs> ones seem to kind of almost bring a piece of some kind. <laughs> That's funny because, <laughs> and I don't know if this is, yeah, my general feeling at the end of it was like, yeah, dude, I know. <laughs> so I don't know if that's something about my mental health, but I actually feel like pretty good. Like I feel pretty mentally healthy unless there's like something very like clear that I'm ignoring right now. But like, no, I think you can you can relate to the content, relate to the issues without necessarily having it have the same impact or detriment to yourself. Yeah. I think that um, like, OK, the song where he's like 30. And he's doing it like, wow, what a fantastic creation. The part where he's flashing his phone away from his thigh and making the strobe light is just genius. At the same time, you know that he had to be like, I am a 30-year-old in my underwear in a room by myself, like seeing this. And there was like a quiet moment where I think he allowed himself to sit in it too much a couple times and like that's his right as an individual person and stuff. And I have no right to an opinion on him at all. Um yeah. But yeah, just to say, I get what you mean, but I did love Inside, if only for like, welcome to the internet. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. and the one where he's like, hold me accountable. How do I put it? I think that he discusses in the special, not feeling like he has concise, cohesive, clever things to say mm -hmm. about what's going on. Mm -hmm. And that life has gotten more complicated and less easy to deal with. And he's still depressed. And that's kind of the message of it. Yeah. And so, like, as an adult, I was kind of like, yeah, welcome to the club. Yeah. So I do get what you're saying. I do get what you're saying. But, like, I mean, yeah, I guess I understand that for other people that aren't content creators that, like, haven't had to experience that from his point of view. Like, it was very self-relevatory and that, like, oh, this is what it's like, you know, trying to make content in, in a time where it seems like, why would you make content? But it's like, yeah, we've been we as creators have been dealing with this the entire time. We know it's like, yeah. And, and even like heavier for me specifically in that, like I've been interviewing like wildly different people that like do different things and are wildly more important than me. And I'm like, Oh, what made you want to do this with your life instead of like me who decided to be a musician and do completely nothing and affect the shape of the world in no way whatsoever. This is the paradox of like what right, <laughs> my but existence I mean, is. But the paradox of it means that you can't make a blanket blanket statement of something like, Oh, not impacting the world. Because one, if you don't believe in free will, <laughs> you can believe that your life purpose was like one podcast that you already did three years ago that doesn't resonate with you at all. And that your actual purpose in the grand scheme of things was the chain of events that that tricked off for maybe a listener who sure. you are not even aware of. Yeah. That could be mm -hmm. potential. So everything that we do could have significance, especially if you prescribe to that. Um, yeah. In my opinion, but also I, I really do think um, he addresses it in there when he's like, should I be joking at a time like this? Mm -hmm. When the pandemic happened, when quarantine happened, everyone turned to artists. Yeah. Like, because there was nothing to do but to consume mm -hmm. content. Because even material consumption was limited. Yeah. You couldn't go to new places. You couldn't go to new restaurants. You couldn't buy a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so people got back into reading. People got into music. People got into movies, YouTube. Like, all of these film groups and book clubs and mm -hmm. hobbyists, like, came about um, that are artisan yeah. in nature. 
I guess just to say that um, my existence up to this point so far has been one of largely absorption and then hopefully deliberate regurgitation. Yeah. And yeah. Um, that develops like weird imposter syndromes and questions of morality about your purpose and contribution to things. Um, but I personally still do think this year illustrated to me the importance of comedians and musicians and artists of any kind in a way that no other year of my life did. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think I may have always believed that I needed art maybe more than everyone else did. Yeah. Um, and this year kind of confirmed for me that maybe I'd just been in higher pressure situations <laughs> and needed it more often than some. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> You're important. Yay. We're important. Yay. <laughs> You're like, for someone who's so nihilistic, you're really trying to build it up. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's, um, I mean, it, it's hard for any of us to be optimistic nowadays. We talked about that in the last one. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> I just, I know that we talked about this, but what am I optimistic about in the future? I think I said, like, about me getting to be content. Or something like, I really do think like your greatest obligation is to yourself. Like you're born with yourself. You die with yourself. Like the people that you care about and the things that you accomplish are certainly of significance mm -hmm. because they are significant to you. Yeah. And like you are allowed to be inherently selfish in your existence mm -hmm. and to make yourself happy and to hope that that also makes other people happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, this is something that, like, David Byrne says all the time, but it's like you're never actually in, alone because you're always with yourself. And so it's like, oh, uh, I'm going to go to the movies alone because I'm a loner. And it's like, no, you're going to the movies with yourself. You're you're in the company of yourself. And that's yeah. that's something. <laughs> that's um, Yeah, that's also a big approach too. just and um, we've talked about empathy and different therapy things and stuff. Uh, I think the best thing that I've learned in therapy is to treat myself sometimes like a separate person. Yeah. Uh, like to take care of myself. Yeah. Would you say this to your friend? Like, no, no you why are you treating yourself like this? Exactly. Like if I fail at something, I would never say that to someone else mm. the way like I'm so cruelty. I'm so cruel with myself <laughs> because I am hoping that somehow by being cruel in private, I will avoid someone else's cruelty. Yeah. And like, it's the myth of perfectionism that you can do something so right that no one has fault with you. Yeah. It won't happen. Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, with that, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for doing this with me. Where can we find you and your things? Thank you. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Bailey Gill or SoundCloud at Bailey Gilbert. But thank you for having me. This was super fun and I'm sure chaotic. Yeah. All over the place. Yeah. Well, this is the, I mean, this is the thing. And this is why I love doing the second podcast as an open conversation, because it allows for that chaos without me just like barraging guests with like a bunch of questions. So. Right. Well, thank you so much. This is great. Yeah. So I'm Santiago Ramones. I'm Bailey Gilbert. You can find everything that I do on my website, SantiagoRamones.com. I make music and produce audio. I have an EP, a short album that is streaming everywhere right now. It's called Soundbites. The music you're hearing right now is from Soundbites. Listen to it on Spotify, Apple Music, and anywhere else you stream music or buy it on Bandcamp because a single purchase is the monetary equivalent of streaming it all day, every day for a year. I'm also working on another album. So if you'd like to hear that at some point, you can buy my music or you can support me on Patreon. 
That's patreon.com slash Santiago Ramones. Follow me on Instagram to stay up to date with all the stuff that I'm doing, both at bit.depth and at Santiago Ramones Music. There's also a Discord server in which we discuss deep topics from the podcast, but it's also a community of beautiful human beings. Go to santiagoramones.com slash discord to join. If you like the podcast, leave comments on social media, leave reviews by saying how much you like the podcast, and tell your friends about it. I really couldn't be doing this without you, and I am so very grateful to continue doing BitDepth for this long. Thank you so much for listening to and supporting BitDepth. I always end the podcast with my three things. They shape my life philosophy. Love never fails. It's going to be okay. I might be wrong.